0: Tonight, Psalm number 24, if you care, Uh, this was a message that I had prepared to preach last Sunday night while we were still exploring whether we were going to have an evening service. It's not a Christmas message, but it obviously is, neither is it from the pastoral, so we're just, uh, I thought rather than throw it away, just bump things ahead a week. So, Psalm number 24, a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. And let's pray. Lord God, as always, we are completely dependent upon your Spirit to help us to really understand anything that you say to us. And so that is our prayer this evening, that we would understand the message, the content of this beautiful song, and that we would add to it our prayers and our praises to the King of glory. And I pray your help tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, we have in the time since Thanksgiving and this first of the year, at some point in time, dealt with Psalm 22, 23, and 24. And I pointed out to you that they really function as kind of a trilogy, these three psalms. In Psalm 22, we see our Savior as he suffers. And that was our Message last Sunday morning, the suffering and the salvation of our Savior. In Psalm 23, He is the Savior or the who is shepherding, and there we have the ministry of the Lord to His people, to shepherd them through the course of their lives, to pursue them with His goodness. And in this psalm, number 24, he is the Savior who is sovereign. And the theme of the psalm is the sovereignty of the Savior. Now, if you just read 23 and 24 together, it would become obvious immediately that Psalm 23 is beautiful and tender and ministers to us almost subconsciously, that it it, it, is, it is a psalm to the heart. And, of course, it comes to the heart by coming through the mind. But we are not challenged by any part of it. No verse that we read, no word that we read, causes us to ask, what is this here, and what does this have to do with anything? That is just not the nature of the psalm. But Psalm 24, it is also obvious as we read through it, that it's going to take a little bit of inquisition to understand what is happening in this psalm and how it is working together. Whereas Psalm 23 is, to the heart, a consolation and an encouragement immediately and directly to the people of the Lord. Psalm 24 is a true work of theology And it is painting for us a very broad picture. And that's what we, I think, need to understand at the outset is that this is kind of the bird's eye or the fish eye view of our God and his work in this world. I want to do two things with the psalm tonight. First of all, I just want to walk through it structurally. And by that I mean it is a song It is an inspired song, and to look at its separate stanzas, there are three of them. And so we will begin by looking at this psalm structurally and noting the various parts to the music that are written. The first stanza is verses 1 and 2. They are not equal in their length. But the first stanza of the song is verses 1 and 2. And we could say that verses 1 and 2 are a claim. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is a claim, a declaration. The world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. So here's a claim. As, as the Israelites sang this song, they begin by singing God's claim to the universe. The earth belongs to Jehovah, and everything that fills it. And obvious we do, obviously, we do not live in a barren planet. But what God created was a barren planet, and that is what's being referenced there in verse number 2. He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. The the idea there, if, if you go back, and we'll not go back and read the creation account, but when God created the world, God created a world deliberately that was in darkness and chaos. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And of course, we understand from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that from the very beginning, from the time that God begins to explain to us his creation of the world, he is doing it using heavy theological concepts. That just as the world existed in darkness and God said, let there be light, so men are born into spiritual darkness until God says to them, turn on the light of Christ. So this is a reference to the very act of creation. He hath founded it upon the waters, upon the oceans, and established it, made it firm upon the floods. He made these separations. And he made them, of course, horizontally, the clouds from the earth. And he made it within the geography of the earth itself. There are rivers and oceans. And so the song begins then with this claim that all the earth belongs to the Lord because he made it. And again, folks, this is the most insidious dimension of evolution. Not the suggestion that God might have or possibly could have taken millions, if not billions of years to bring the earth to its being, but that the world exists without a creator. That it is just there. When every claim that God levies upon mankind is at some point in time anchored upon the fact that we are his creation. It, isn't, it, isn't, it is more even than, than simple ownership. It is creation. He made us. He made us. He made a place for us to live. He made a planet that is hospitable to us. And although I don't spend much time on this, I would argue that it is really somewhat disrespectful for us to become obsessed with the possibility of there being life on other planets when all of God's attention is devoted to one planet and to one population of people. So there's the first stanza, a claim. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, because he made it. The second stanza then, and this is verses 3 through 6, is a question. It is a question that is asked in light of the claim that is made. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? There's the question. If the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness belongs to him, and it all belongs to him because he made it. Who stands where he stands? Who gets to stand in his holy place? Who can climb to the hill that God labels as his? And in verses 4, 5, and 6, <clears throat> excuse me, in verses 4, 5, and 6, you have then the answer to that question. The question is not just asked, It is answered. He that hath clean hands. Who can ascend to the Lord's hill? Somebody who is clean externally. Their hands are clean. And a pure heart. One who is clean internally. His heart is clean. His hands are clean and his heart is clean one who is clean intentionally verse number 4 who hath not lifted up his soul, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity one who is clean intentionally and deliberately the earth is the lord's it all belongs to him he made it now who gets to go on his hill Well, somebody is clean externally and clean internally and clean intentionally and clean verbally nor sworn deceitfully, the end of verse number four. So it takes a broad spectrum of righteousness. A righteousness that is within and without. A righteousness that is of the heart And of the mouth, this is who is able to stand upon the Lord's holy hill. And verse number 5 then goes on as part of the answer to the question. Anybody who is meeting the demands of verse number 4 will receive the blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. So those who are clean internally and externally and intentionally and verbally they'll receive the Lord's blessing they will receive the Lord's salvation and this is verse number 6 a generation of people this is the generation of them that that seek him that seek thy face o jacob Selah. I don't want to spend a lot of time. This is one of my challenges in dealing with psalms is to dissect them. But there are just a lot of ways that the word generation is used in the Bible. It just doesn't always mean a body of people who are living within a narrow window of time. And it certainly cannot be being used that way in this psalm. Here it is being used in its broadest possible sense. This is the family. There's there's going to be, folks, a family of people who meet the criteria set forth in verse number 4 to be able to stand on God's holy hill. It is His world. He made it. He gets to control who does what and who goes where. Who gets to stand in His sacred place and we're going to come to this but of course this is all has great symbolic meaning to Israel they would read this only and think in terms of Jerusalem God's sacred city Jacob this is the generation the descendants of Jacob so not simply a group of people who are alive on earth at that particular point in time but an entire ancestry of people who shared the same heritage, the heritage of the Lord. So there's the second stanza, verses 3 through 6. The first stanza is a claim. The second stanza is a question. That brings us to the third stanza, verses 7 through 10, and it's a coronation. A claim, a question, a coronation. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be, lift up ye everlasting doors. The King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. The King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory, Selah. And as we do, folks, as we have... Songs that conclude with choruses that have repetition. We have a dimension of repetition in verses 7 through 10. I don't think in verse number 7 and in verse number 9 that the gates are being given human attributes. That the songwriter is thinking of the gates as being people. Lift up your head. But what he's talking about there is Again, using poetic imagery, have the gate fully opened. Open it all the way. Because the head refers not only to the physical head, but to the top. To the uppermost part of the thing. Or the widest possible opening. Open the gates fully open the gates fully so that the king may come in and who is the king right we have in the second stanza a question a question that is not for simply an individual but for an entire generation of people but there's only one king who is the king jehovah jehovah is the king and he is strong and he is mighty and he is victorious And he is the Lord of hosts, which means armies or multitudes. When we come to a psalm, when we come to any psalm, one of the questions we ask, right, it's a song, and and we ask ourselves, why did the Israelites have this song? What was its point to them? Or what was the reason for the song? Who wrote it when? And we don't really know that. Some of the psalms are clearly labeled For instance, because it's one we're so familiar with, Psalm 51 we can place to a specific event without any difficulties because part of the psalm is that David wrote it after Nathan the prophet had confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. We have no such marker in this psalm. But the most common consensus is that it was written by King David upon the relocation of the ark. In First Samuel chapter 4, of course, back in the book of Exodus, the, the ark was built and its purpose explained. And it was covered with the mercy seat, the solid gold seat. And it was placed into the most holy of holies. And only once a year did anybody even enter into that little room and only then to throw a pail of blood upon it on the Day of Atonement. But in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites in one of their moments of absolute befuddlement believed that they would be more successful against the Philistines if they dragged the ark to the battlefield. And the Philistines then captured it. We know the story. And we took it to one of their cities where it brought nothing but pain and misery to the Philistines. Until finally, after they passed it around to a couple of cities, they despaired and nobody wanted it. Nobody would take it and they finally really just abandoned it. They, They said, well, we'll just put some ox to it and we'll just send it on its way and we'll see what happens. And off it went making a beeline for the Israelites. When he returned to the Israelites, some men of Beth Beth Shemeth, and that's where the the ark went. Again, in one of their more befuddled moments, thought it would be cool to look inside of the ark and see what was there. And God killed 50,000 Israelites for that. And so the men of Bethshemesh no longer wanted it. And the men of Kiriath-jearim came to get it. And it spent 20 years in the house of Abinadab, and God blessed Abinadab because of the presence of the ark. 20 years later, David is the king. And we of course recalled that Saul was the king for 40 years and Saul had no interest, folks, in anything spiritual. He just didn't. We can debate all day long whether Saul was a believer or an unbeliever. I do not believe he was a believer. But this should be beyond any debate. Saul had no interest, genuine interest in the Lord or anything that had to do with the Lord. Saul was interested in Saul. And so the ark sat where it was. But David wanted the ark relocated to where it belonged and. So you can read about the activity of David in 2 Samuel 6 as he is bringing the ark back. This, of course, is where Uzzah is killed and the ark sits for another three months until finally David brings it back into the city of David or the city just outside of Jerusalem. (coughs) And so the consensus is that this is the occasion when David wrote this psalm something to celebrate the return of the ark, the triumph of God over his enemies. Jewish history tells us that this psalm was sung on the first day of the week. That the priests who were on duty in the temple on the first day of the week sang Psalm 24. That's their historical account, not our fabrication for our purposes. If that be true and we would believe that it is, then while Jesus was entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the Jews were singing the coronation song in the temple. Who is the king of glory? Here he comes, meek and lowly, riding upon an ass. So there's the structure of the psalm, folks. Three stanzas. A claim, a question, and a coronation. Secondly, then, let's look at the psalm thematically. What is it about? More specifically, what do each of its three parts have to do with each other? We don't go to the store and look for a card that reads like this, Happy birthday to you. I hope you get well soon. Sorry for your loss, but happy anniversary. Those are dissociated events. They don't seem to have anything to do with each other. And when we read this psalm, folks, if we I mean, at first glance, it reads like three distinct little songs. We're going to sing a song about creation. And we're going to sing a song about righteousness. And we will sing a song about the coronation of the king. So let me suggest to you that you tuck away in your mind or write in the margin of your Bible that what you have here, folks, is a psalm that really only makes sense when we understand that it is a presentation to us chronologically. The claim... The claim is the beginning. God created the world. And it all belongs to him. And God saves some of those people by his righteousness. Because again, folks, as we did this morning, we would never want to come to this psalm and do an injustice to verse number 3 and 4 by thinking we could manufacture our own righteousness that we could somehow make our hands clean enough, our insides clean enough on our own, but that actually what we have is the blessing of Christ's forgiveness, his redemptive work. We have his creative work, and we have in the second stanza in the question, his redemptive work. And I really do think that it's pretty clear to see who gets to stand on God's hill Alright, let's, let's fast forward a little bit through the details of the righteousness and this is the generation, verse number 6, of them that seek Him. Them that seek Him. Only righteousness that is satisfactory to God will enable us to stand in His place. And I don't mean in his as his replacement. I mean to stand in a place that he designates. And again, for Israel, this is Jerusalem, Israel. So we go back. There is a, there's a, a chronological progression. God is our creator. God is our savior. Finally, God is our king. And not just king in the sense that he is in the king now that we worship him and serve him. And, and do obeisance to him and listen to his voice in the sense of his coronation he is king. One of the critiques of the view that David wrote this psalm upon the recovery of the ark is that it doesn't do justice to the psalm. There's no king being crowned. When the ark is being returned. But folks. All of those things are always just previews. Anyway. They're, they're, they're little glimpses. That's, that's always what we have. Are, are just glimpses. Of what it's going to be like. When the Lord comes. They're just wetting the appetite. So the king is, well, let me ask you to turn, I'm going to close with this. Turn, if you would, to Zechariah chapter 9. The literary high point of the psalm, then, of course, is the return of the king, the coronation of the king. Open the doors as wide as you can open them. The king is coming, who is the king of glory, Jehovah, mighty, victorious, triumphant. Zechariah 9.9, just, just two verses from Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9, we know, is the prediction of what we call Palm Sunday. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, righteous, having salvation, lowly, riding upon an ass and upon a colt the foal of an ass. We can go to the Gospels and we can find that. We can find the Messiah riding in people laying down their palm fronds, celebrating Hosanna, save us now, Jehovah, save us now. (laughs) But if you look at verse number 10, verse number 10 cannot be referring to Palm Sunday. It is referring to a completely different event, literally in the same breath as verse number 9. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, And the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen, which again means the Gentiles, the nations. And his dominion, because remember, it's all his, it's all his. He made it, it all belongs to him. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. That's not Palm Sunday. That didn't happen on Palm Sunday. But it is going to happen and when it happens, Psalm 24 is the song celebrating it. The King of Glory is coming to town. The King of Glory has entered We go to the book of Malachi, we can go to the Gospel of John, and we can see that the Bible very clearly explains that Jesus Christ is Jehovah come in the flesh. That he is the one who will be pierced. I'm sorry, I said Malachi, book of Zechariah. He is the one who will be pierced, Jehovah in the flesh. He is the king of glory. And folks, this is what we anticipate. And we serve the Lord really for the same reasons that the Israelites do. We, we are doing honor to our king. We are anticipating his kingdom. We are living in the light of his glorious rule right now. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for teaching us <clears throat> who you are, our creator, our Savior, our King. But Father, thank you for teaching us all that we enjoy and all that we will have because of those things. We are receiving the kingdom too. We will behold the King in his beauty and we will serve him eternally. And so, Father, help us to not waste our days right now, but to use them wisely, please. In Jesus' name, amen.